Welcome to our Lead to Succeed podcast, where we share leadership and business growth insights, both from our own experiences and that of our guests. We're the hosts. I'm Rebecca Jenkins, founder of Argen, helping companies to grow by finding, gaining and growing the best clients. And I'm Callum, sharing my perspectives from both being an entrepreneur and working in a variety of different companies. Whether you lead a team or a business, you'll find practical tips, inspirational insights and ideas as we discuss a wide range of leadership topics. So with that, here's today's episode. It is a real pleasure and an absolute delight and I'm, very, I'm buzzing by this because we have Tom Peters as our podcast guest. Now, I have a book from Tom Peters that he signed um, said some really nice words when I was involved with one of his seminars back in London. That was in 1997. So I'm sure Tom has lots of thoughts on leadership since then, or maybe some of the same themes are going to come through. He's written over 17 books. What's your total now, Tom? Uh, this one is 19, depending <laughs> on how you do your counting. Okay. We, had, we had one self-published book that we did on my 60th birthday and it was you know gorgeous photography etc and uh basically it was all giveaways but it's a real book so the answer is 18 or 19 take your pick 18 or 19 books all and my response to that is always not bad for an engineer <laughs> i hadn't appreciated that was your background so definitely not bad for an engineer at no. all and you write on business management and you're, you've written the book, the In Search of Excellence, was really where it all started, isn't it? And from there on in, you've written In Pursuit of Wow, The Little Big Things, 163 Ways to Pursue Excellence, and now your latest book. So maybe you'd just like to do an introduction for us on your latest book. Yeah, the, the latest book is called Excellence Now, Extreme Humanism. And there are multiple ways to attack that. I kind of had most of what I had now in semi-final draft in February of 2020. And then as we all know, both sides of the Atlantic and every other ocean the world went to hell. And everything I've done in the 19 books is about really focusing on people. And so, and maybe this is arrogant in a way, but I said, all the things I said before are now 10 times more important. You know, and, and that's the critical point. We did, uh, my wife is a textile artist, among many other things, and she was sewing and creating masks at the beginning of this thing. And I said to myself one morning, watching her working, what am I doing sitting on my backside? And so we, my colleague Shelley, who you've worked with, and I volunteered arrogantly to some extent to do podcasts on leadership at, at the time of covid uh, 19. And one of the pieces of that, which is now the first page of the new book, is what I call the Leadership 7 COVID-19. And it was, be kind, be caring, be patient, be
be forgiving, be positive, be present, and walk in the other person's shoes. Uh, I think, and everyone I've talked with does that, needless to say, this holds in its own fashion as much in a post-COVID world as it does during COVID times. And I and many others, and I've been part of exchanges on this, are keeping our fingers crossed and hoping that some of the good stuff that organizations have done will in fact migrate to a world where F2F perhaps returns to a significant degree. Uh, and it also coincides, which was in the draft before the COVID time, uh, with the coming artificial intelligence tsunami. There were a pair of Oxford economists who wrote uh, something that became, that really spread around, in which they said they used the United States as their example. They said 50% of American white collar jobs will be threatened with extinction within 20 years. And so I, I refuse to talk about the book and say it's how to fight back because that sounds defensive. The notion of extreme humanism is how to create extraordinary things, relationships, services, products, and so on that will let you stay ahead of the curve. Uh, some people use an interesting combination of, of, of whatever you want to call it, letters, terms, AI versus IA. And AI is artificial intelligence. How fast can we throw how many bodies out the window? And IA is intelligence augmented. How can we use these tools to, in fact, enhance the interaction you and I are having right this minute? enhance the interactions with our customers and so on. And so, and, you know, it's funny, I have a colleague, Nancy Green, who was the book designer. And in the early title, there was uh, the word humanistic. And Nancy called me one day and she said, humanistic is about manipulation. She said, let's use humanism. And, you know, I don't know what your reaction is, but my first reaction was, okay. And my 10th reaction was, holy smokes, what a dramatic difference. It's about humanism. It's about who you are. It's about who I am and translating that into an environment that is a business environment. And then the, you know, I call it the dirty little secret. Uh, it also turns out that all of this stuff is a great way to keep your customers happy and make money. You know, you, you don't, you don't have to do it for reasons. So there was, there was this great thing as an, uh, 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 well-known American columnist by the name of David Brooks who does stuff for the New York Times. And this is one of my favorite things in, in recent times. In one of his columns, he contrasted what he called resume virtues with eulogy virtues. And resume virtues are accomplishments. Where did you go to college? What was your first job? You've been promoted three times, et cetera, et cetera. And eulogy virtues, which is obvious, are what do they say about you at your funeral? And the big point being is what we talk about is how this human treated other humans. We do not, you know, I said one time, I have this little slide I use, it's PowerPoint, 
and it has a tombstone. And on the tombstone is the name, Sam Smith. And under it, it says $17,823,219.12. His net worth when the market closed on the day that he died. And my point is nobody's ever had a tombstone with their net worth on it. Absolutely right. <laughs> Absolutely right. Tom, it's a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank, thank you very much for, for joining us. Um, and in, in your book, you talk about this very much like this, this caring and inclusive leadership approach where, where people are put, put first, walking in the other person's shoes. And I'd love to just kind of dive back into those like seven uh, sort of key traits that you, yeah. you outlined. Why do you think it's those seven in particular that are the most important ones for leaders in this sort of pre and, and kind of post-COVID time versus perhaps uh, another trait? I don't. It's not driven by some specific piece of research that okay. led to those. There is uh, an American novelist by the late, by the name of uh, Henry James. And he said, there are three things that are important in human life. The first is to be kind. The second is to be kind. And the third is to be kind. And it's all about human decency. I mean, interestingly enough, I've got a couple of books in front of me, uh, and one of those books, which is a wonderful collection, is called Kindness in Leadership, and the lead co-author, it's a collection of papers, but the lead co-author is a great friend of mine, who Gay Haskins is her name, and she's at the Said Business School within Oxford, and so it's, you know, it's, it's got its other side of the Atlantic. Uh, uh, pedigree. And one of the things I loved in Gay's book, among the various articles, was there was an article on sports coaching. And I don't know whether you can make exactly a one-to-one -one translation between the U.S. and the U.K., but sportsmen are supposed to be tough, and they're supposed to be aggressive, and they're supposed to be tenuous. And the argument here was some of the greatest coaches uh, mainly in this case from British sporting teams, professional sporting teams, was it's really developing a sense of teamwork. It's really be, really about players supporting other players. And that's as true in rugby as it is in running a hospital. And I love that because, you know, as I said, the only thing that matters where you are in the world, say athlete and you, you know, immediately, rah, 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 and they're saying, no, it's about 180 degrees uh, away from that. I, I did something a few years ago, and I'm trained as an engineer, and I said, that means I am required by law to speak in equations. And the equation was K equals R equals P. And it was kindness equals repeat business equals profit. And yeah, as, as you probably know from, from my work, it's the same thing. Uh, I've done enormous amount would be arrogant. I've done a lot on the issue of far more women in senior management roles. And my comment has always been, I believe in social justice. And I believe that that's a good reason to talk about this. But that's not why I'm talking about it. I'm talking about more women in senior leadership for two sets of reasons. Reason one is the research is clear. On average, women are better leaders, better negotiators, and better investors. And reason two is women buy everything. They are the market. 
and particularly for many of us in 90% of the world or 70% of the world or what have you with the aging population. And we boys have done women a great favor by statistically speaking, leaving seven years earlier than they do is the enormity of wealth controlled by women age 50 plus is just staggering. And so you do it for market reasons, you do it to have better organizations, and a wonderful side benefit is the social justice part. Why is it, do you think, Tom, that women are better leaders? I mean, this was a topic that I obviously wanted to chat to you about. What, why is it, do you think? Uh, there are a couple things I would say. First of all, and I try to say this every time I write or every time whatever, I always say women are better leaders on average uh, because I don't want to get every, you know, there are fabulous male leaders and there are awful female leaders, but yeah. on average. Mm -hmm. And one of the primary reasons is that relative to my shtick, women tend to focus on the human dimension. Uh, and men, relative to my sport, sports point before, men are competitive for the sake of being competitive, uh, whether it's in the context of a training course or what, or what have you. The, the relative to the investment thing, for example, uh, there's a wonderful book written by a woman by the name of Luann Lofton, who is a finance professional. And her book is called Warren Buffett invests like a girl and why you should too. And Buffett had never seen the book, but he saw the book and he said, I didn't really know that I invested like a girl, but I guess I do. And the, the, the kind of bottom line is this. Uh, it's near the end of the trading day and I'm sitting at one desk and my colleague James is sitting at another desk and James has had a better of the day than I did. And there are now 30 minutes left before the market closes. James is not going to have a better day than I do. I am going, going for it. I'm going to pick any piece of crap, no matter how you know, long-term the bet odds are. And I'm going to beat that sucker. That's about as boyish as it gets. And women tended to be more thoughtful. They tended to think before they opened their mouth or, you know, pushed their finger on the right button. And, and then the same thing happens in the, in the organizational world. Uh, and it's back to our sports coach who said being decent to each other increases team performance. Uh, and those human behaviors, which you have more, more of than I have on average, uh, are all associated with effect. I mean, leadership is, so stupid. I've been doing this for 40 years and why the hell do I have to spend a damn morning when I could be outside in the sun saying people are important. I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> no, I said to somebody and you mentioned kindly my 1994 book. And I said, you know, I'm greedy as the next person, love to have the royalties for all 19 of my books. But the dirty little secret is they all say exactly the same thing. You know, they fundamentally say, take care of people, put people first, 
train the daylights out of people, training being a really critical word in, the, in this sense, and particularly with the new technologies coming. I, I'm, a, I'm a total blothering, drooling fanatic on the topic of training. And what I say, which is, you know, which is true on every side of every ocean, is I said, look, if you don't believe in training, I want you to make a phone call. I want you to call an admiral or a general or a fire chief or a police chief or a theater director and ask them whether training is important. And, you know, obviously it's a dumb suggestion. That's what they do. And, 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 and my whole point with the first book using the word, you know, the, the little story I tell, which is honest, is excellence came from the San Francisco Ballet. The night before I had to give a, yeah, give a presentation when I was at McKinsey, uh, my ex-wife and I went to this beautiful performance by the San Francisco Ballet. And I don't believe in light bulbs going off or any of that kind of crap. But as I sat down looking at the material, I thought, what is it against the law for business to be like the ballet? You know, and around ballet and sports, maybe slightly different words, we talk about excellence, we talk about beauty, we talk about things like that. Well, why shouldn't that be the same thing for a 400 room hotel? Why shouldn't that be the same thing for a piece of hard uh, software in a you know, very sophisticated thing? And so, you know, that's, that's my deal. 43, you know, we say in the book, 43 years of saying the same damn thing. Would you please listen? I don't have that much time left. There is something in one of your first-ish books that talks about um, the people at the Ritz-Carlton, the chamber, the people that clean the rooms and do all of that lovely stuff, having the authority or the ability to actually sort out a, um, a problem of somebody who's staying there. And I tested that out and it, it was absolutely true. Um, well, let me, let me stick with the Ritz-Carlton for a minute. Yeah. Uh, Nine out of 10's, 10 of the corporate slogans or vision things are designed by a bunch of old white men and printed on cards. Not true at the Ritz-Carlton. Uh, the Ritz-Carlton, you take your pick, credo, essence, core value is ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen. And the key point of that is that, and I don't know if this is true all over the world, I sure as heck know it's true in the United States, uh, we don't exactly tend to treat housekeepers like ladies and gentlemen. And yet, again, if you stick with the hospitality industry, the human being who has the most face-to-face -face contact with the guest is in fact the housekeeper. And, uh, you know, so I just wanted to add, and I love that. And I love it, I love it only because they lived it. And it was, you know, not a corny thing as, as I describe it. The usual vision statement is, is put together at an offsite when a whole bunch of old white men who've had too much to drink sit around and write some stuff on a piece of paper and then Xerox it 87,000 times and hand it to the unsuspecting employees on Monday. It's unfair, but it's not that unfair. Yeah. And I guess that goes back to your point of sort of extreme humanism, really, doesn't it? Thomas? sort of being inclusive, caring, and, and sort of walking in, in other people's shoes. 
Um, yeah, and, and one thing about that, incidentally, uh, there's a, I lived in Silicon Valley for 30 years. There's a disgusting book about Silicon Valley written by a wonderful woman called Brotopia. And it's, you know, the ending the Silicon Valley Boys Club. But one of the things that she says relative to you know, your question and what we were talking about a minute ago is if Facebook had had 35% women writing code, and there's a key word coming up, had 35% women writing code, the sensibility of the code would have been different than it was with a bunch of 28 year old boys with too much testosterone making too much money at the age of 24. But I just love the, I love the notion of sensibility. There would have been a, a little bit more thoughtfulness in it. There would have been not quite so much crude aggressiveness, maybe not a 100% focus on how many clicks can we get. Great point. Tom, um, as we, we've probably got time for a couple of questions left, and I'd just like to sort of tie what we've, what we've spoken about to get together a little bit at the start of the podcast. You talked about all these different skills that, that leaders should sort of exhibit, putting people first. Um, and in your book as well, you mentioned uh, some of the top skills of the, some of the top leaders at a certain company. Um, some of those skills were listening, being empathetic, problem solver, communicating. And you also talk, talk a lot about listening. Uh, one of the strategic, uh, so one of the st a strategic plan for a business should be strategic uh, commitment to, to listening at all levels of the organization. And I think this is something that uh, some of our other guests have talked about on, on other episodes is listening, being a leader at kind of any level of the organization. So I'd like to ask you a question. To, to what extent do you think leadership then is kind of a mindset rather than like a, a particular role? First of all, yes, I think it's a mindset, not a particular role. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry if I've stumped you a little bit. I want to I give you a good and not glib answer. Yeah, sure. I hate the word epiphany, but when we were doing the research for In Search of Excellence, I had an epiphany. Didn't know it until 15 years later. Uh, my co-author and colleague, Bob Waterman, and I worked for McKinsey in San Francisco. One morning, we drove down the peninsula 30 miles to Hewlett-Packard, which was a big company, but not the monster it is today. Maybe it had just passed the billion-dollar mark. And we had a meeting with the president. His name was John Young. And in the course of the meeting, interview, whatever you want to call it, he introduced us to what he called the HP way, which today we would call corporate culture. And within that, he introduced us to the notion of MBWA, or managing by wandering around. And those four letters are the center of my life. Uh, I mean them as much metaphorically as I do physically. But the notion of MBWA is leaders who are in touch, leaders who are in listening, who are listening, leaders who care as much about that housekeeper as they do about the hot shot in 
marketing. And John took us on a wander uh, through the engine, one of the big engineering areas. And it was just a, it was a, you know, I had worked with the big banks and so on where the CEO couldn't even find the damn bank floor probably. Uh, and I watched John talking, I don't know, he was 50 or something. I watched him talking comfortably with 24 year old engineers. Um, and, you know, the chat might include a couple of seconds on your favorite football club and what they had done last Sunday, but it would be engineering issues. And he would almost always say, you know, he said, I know that leaders like me are the problem, not the solution. What are we doing to you that makes your life harder? And how can I get rid of it? But it was, it was just what the three of us are doing here. It was a conversation. It was a conversation. And, and that was, that was, you know, bombs bursting in air. I, I just never, never seen that before. Uh, and I don't mean that all leaders are stuffed shirts, but all leaders are stuffed shirts, or most of them are. Uh, and so that was the whole feel, human, humanism, one-on-one -on -one connection. I don't know, HP must have had 30,000 employees by then or 25, whatever it was, it was a big institution. But there was still intimacy. And intimacy is a key word. Uh, it was intimacy. It was, I really, really, really wanted you to succeed. I really, really wanted you, if you left us after two years or 20 years, to be better prepared for the world into which you would go than you were when you got here. Uh, and, and again, as I said, the, the, the little secret that the people in the finance department like is it's a great way to have fabulous customer relationships and a custom, fabulous relationships are a great way you know, to make money. There's a guy by the name of John DeJulius who I quote in the new book and he runs a, a series, sorry, owns, runs, manages, leads a series of health spas. And he says, remember your customers will never be any happier than your employees. And on the one hand, you can call that a one-liner that they write in management books. On the other hand, it is something that a priest or preacher or rabbi could you know, say from a pulpit. Your customers will never be any happier than your employees. And you know, as I said, I, I know it works in the hotel and I know it works in the restaurant, but damned if I don't think it would have worked at Facebook. Yeah, that's, uh, that's such a... Uh... A good way of putting things, you know, you've got to put your employees first and uh, they will go on to delight the customers. Well, the one critical thing, uh, if you want that to happen, hire for it, damn it. Yeah. Hire for empathy. It's a, it's a funny little story, but when they do these rankings of healthcare groups and so on, uh, the one that almost always comes out on top is the Mayo Clinic, which comes from Minnesota and so on. Uh, so I am a famous neurosurgeon who'd give my left arm to work for Mayo and you're interviewing me, okay? Mm -hmm. There's a dirty little secret that I don't know. 
and you know, do it with your iPhone, do it writing on your hand with a pen. During the interview, I am counting the number of times you use the word we and the number of times you use the word I. And if the I's beat the we's, you ain't gonna get the job, even though you are God's gift to humankind in terms of neurosurgery. And they call it the practice of team medicine. And it goes back to their founder in 1914. And you know, again, I don't know about uh, the NHS, but you know, that kind of teamwork ain't average in the modern hospital, I'm afraid to say. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I mean, I, I want every job. You know, we, we, we have a, another guy we quote and he runs a biotech company and, and he said, we only hire nice people. And he said, look, some of the tech jobs here, the science jobs are degrees that you couldn't even pronounce. But he said, give me the narrowest of those degrees and let me tell you a secret. A lot of people have them. Don't hire the jerks. And, uh, you know, my, I, I won't use the language because this is a family gathering, but my wife and I spend it in ye olde days about two and a half months every year uh, in New Zealand. And the guy who does all the special effects and this sounds like such an American thing, but he's not, obviously. All the special effects for Peter Jackson said, the number one thing that makes my company great is never hire an asshole. <laughs> and my, my apologies if that linguistically upset <laughs> anybody, but you know, wasn't me, didn't come from an American, came from, you know, came from this extraordinary fellow who you know, does all, as far as I'm concerned, Peter Jackson walks on water every time he picks up a camera, but that's neither here nor there. I guess it relates to the point that you make in your book, which is full of practical tips on this. I mean, there's plenty of, you can read the book and you get lots of things of what to do now. But in the book, you say that between 50 and 75% of frontline workers are disengaged with their work. And that's because of one thing, and that one thing is. And thank you for asking that question. The bosses. It is the first line boss. Yeah. Not bosses. I mean, that's important too. Yeah. But it is uh, employee drop. Every, everything, everything is a function of the effectiveness and the care and the whatever of that first line leader. And. I mean, it, it rings true to me and there's a ton of evidence, but it also rings true to me because I was in the military for four years and I was in the Navy and which might interest you vaguely for two and a half months of those four years, I was in the Royal Navy, saving, serving on Her Majesty's ship, oh. Tiger. Uh, and, you know, the, the, in the Navy, in the Army, and I'm pretty sure the same words hold on both sides of the ocean, uh, the sergeants run the Army and the chief petty officers run the Navy. One famous person in the US military said the job of the leader is to support his sergeants, but it is the first line leaders. They're the ones who are key. So, you know, and we talked for a moment, a moment ago about empathy. 
If empathy is important for the front line job, it is 10 times more important in the promotion process. You know what, I mean, what, what I like to say about this, and I you know, teach sometimes at the Auckland Business School when, you know, when I'm in New Zealand, and I have a lot of young kids, young to me, uh, who are in their late 20s, and they started out as engineers. But here's the deal. You start out as an engineer, you do all the technical training, you're incredibly good at it. If you're good at it, within 36 months, you're gonna be in charge of a project team. Maybe only a nine person team and maybe only a project that works 10, last 10 weeks. But the minute that you become in charge of a project team, the rest of your professional life is 99.9% .9 about people. How do you get the tech part? You hire the best damn tech people in the world. But your job, again, as I say, nine-person project team only going to last 10 weeks. Your job is to help develop and get commitment and get excitement from those nine people. And yeah, I mean, it's discuss. And the other thing I would add relative to those figures of 70 to 85% are disengaged, and this really shocked me in a way. This is global research, and it is more or less fair to say there is not one damn country on earth where that number varies by more than a teeny bit. You know, take me to the heart of Africa, take me to Romania, uh, take me to Mexico, take me to, you know, Canada, America, or the US, doesn't matter. Three quarters of people aren't engaged. And as I said, I mean, I'm willing to say you did a lousy job of hiring, but if you have a fabulous first line manager, even that can be put slightly in the background. And, and I really love to pound on people about this because my, what I say is I'm not accusing you of not taking it seriously. I am accusing you of not taking it one-tenth as seriously as you should. Tom, I think those are all great points. And there's one thing I'd just like to wrap up on quickly as, as I'm conscious of time we're, we're getting towards the end. And this is a topic which I think ties in a little bit about what we, we started at the start of the podcast by talking about your book being excellence now. Um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of motocross and, and something that the commentators on that often say is, you know, the, 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 the riders are, are only as good as their last race. And there was something, uh, one of your pieces of content I was reading or watching, which said excellence is not a long-term aspiration. It's the ultimate short-term strategy. It's the next five, it's the next five minutes implying kind of, it's, it's how you conduct your next call. It's how you speak to your next customer. It's how you speak to your team kind of in, in, in the present time. It's not how you do it tomorrow. It's not how you do it in five years time. It's kind of right here in the present time. And I, I don't have a particular question off the, off the back of that. Um, I don't know if there's anything you want to add to it. It was just something that resonated with me and I, and I thought it was really uh, just something important. To well, my next to last book was called The Excellence Dividend. And I'm still irritated because the publisher made me do it because the title I wanted for my Latinx, for my last book was Excellence is the Next Five Minutes. Uh, whether it's parenting, and I never like to use that as an analogy because that's a world unto itself. Yeah, let's get very practical. 
I have done 2,500 or so speeches. I have done some significant number of podcasts. I have written almost 20 books. I've been around for 78 years. My entire life on earth right now is the 45 minutes that we spent together. There is nothing before and there is nothing after. It's our interaction. It's like my entire life is built up to this 45 minutes and that's not meant to be even vaguely flattering. Uh, but it's, you know, this is it. This is my, right now, this is my only opportunity on the planet to try to talk about the things that I think are of significance. And so I am bringing 2,600 speeches to our little conversation. And, and that's what I mean, you know, by excellence. Nothing else matters in the world, nothing. I mean, obviously if my wife were ill or if I, you know, my son was ill, that's a different story. But, you know, excluding the obvious things that you must exclude, want to exclude, uh, relative to my professional life, which has been my life because I spend most of my time flying on airplanes, it has seemed, uh, this is it. This is the beginning, this is the middle, this is the end. As far as I'm concerned, if I screw this up, I've screwed my life up. This is it. This is my five minutes or our 45 minutes as the case may be. And, and my bias is the best way to get somewhere 10 years from now is to have a lot of good half hours. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, and one thing I would add to, you know, in a practical sense, um, and I even did this in our conversation, uh, everybody takes all, talks about all the technology changes coming in the next 10 years or the next 15 years or the next 20 years. And it's all true. I have no idea where the hell we're going to be 20 years from now. I'm certainly not going to be around for it. But to get there, you've got to make it through 2021. I mean, I really dislike all of this. Well, what is the situation going to be in 2025? I don't know. You know, it's what have we done to do extraordinary things with our people in 2021? Or, you know, and, and, and that's the key. You know, you, you get there. I mean, you, you have to, we don't have time to share all of my biases. As I said in the tweet that I did yesterday, I always get hysterical when I read uh, strategic plans. Um, <laughs> you know, there, well, there's this wonderful thing. The, uh, you left from Southern England, the commander of American forces on D-Day uh, was a guy by the name of, General Omar Bradley. And Bradley said, amateurs talk about strategy, professionals talk about logistics. Brilliant. The greatest man in the world is irrelevant if the bullets and the gas don't get to the tanks when they come ashore in France on the other side of the channel. Tom, I think we need to book another slot with you because I know, I know you're time restricted. <laughs> And we've only touched the surface of everything that we could talk about. When is your book? When is your book out? It is out. Can't tell you the UK answer. All I can tell you is it came out in the US on the 15th of March. Oh, okay. So we will look forward to having it. I'm sure we can get it on Amazon. Yes, you can definitely get it on Amazon. Okay. Uh, 
And I hope you enjoy it. And this has been a fabulous conversation. As I said, it was the only thing in my life. So there it is. It's been a real honor and wonderful to have you on our podcast. And we are very, very appreciative of that, for you sharing your, all your knowledge and your experience and your insights. Fantastic. And I am very appreciated, appreciative to have been asked to do so. So we're even. Really? <laughs> and likewise for me, Tom, it's been really awesome to have you on. I feel like I've learned a hell of a lot from you in just in these, uh, these past 45 minutes or so. So yeah, a real pleasure for, for being having, okay. having you on our podcast and thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you all. Take care. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear how this podcast has impacted your leadership. And if any of these concepts resonate with you and you'd like to find out more about leadership and business growth, go to the RGM website, rjen.co.uk.